You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark. Now, Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic King. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together, and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear, it's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, but as you're reading through this first half of Mark, you'll notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people, and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account, it's very strange. Yeah, why keep it a secret? So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do, and so Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, who do you all say that I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But then something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the Messianic King. And it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant. Or in his words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is startled by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, which is really intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them. And every time they respond in confusion and even fear. Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book, where Mark addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders, and gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten 
and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it's here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that's going on. He says, surely this is the son of God. Which is crazy. It's an enemy who's first putting it all together that Israel's messianic king is the crucified Jesus. That's the structure of the book of Mark. But the book doesn't end with Jesus dead on the cross. No. So on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it's empty. And then there's this angel standing there, instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away and they don't tell anyone because they're afraid. And that's how the book ends. Which is a really abrupt ending. Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting for? See, that is the crucial question that we've been trying to seek to answer as we've been studying through this Bible book of Mark, that uh, uh, learning a lot about Jesus, who he is, that he is God, God's son, our savior, the Lord God Almighty, Messiah, King of, of everything, and, and what he's done, uh, calmed the sea, walked on water, healed all kinds of uh, sickness, freed people from demonic influences, and even raised the dead, showing us how to live as ones following God and following him and providing for us salvation from our awful condition of sin. That's why the series has been called Jesus saves. And all through uh, these realities uh, of Jesus, Mark has weaved together stories in this Bible book of the Gospel of Mark to challenge us to believe Jesus as the hailed King Messiah of everything, including our own lives. For faith in Jesus of the Bible produces a fruitful life, really an abundant life. That's life to the maximum. Uh, Jesus actually said that in John chapter 10, verse 10, when he said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come, Jesus said, that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Uh, That word abundantly means to the max, the way it was was supposed to be, that Jesus has and wants for us uh, a life that is full, a life that is the life we were meant to live. But but the problem is uh, we have issues. Now, I know the person next to you probably has a lot of issues, but you do too, and, and we all have issues. Uh, you know, uh, we struggle, we, we, we try to make it right, we try to do the right thing, and sometimes we don't, and we, we go through, and we just struggle in life. Uh, we, the Bible calls that, a, that, that condition a, a sin, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and somehow attached to us uh, and born into us is this Uh, propensity and tendency not to go God's way, but to go actually the opposite direction. Isn't that true? You know, you don't have to teach a kid to lie, cheat, or steal. It just kind of comes automatically. A kid just says, no. Why is that the first word they learn? 
<laughs> Some say it's because our parents taught us everything. But it, it, it's, it's, it's this propensity, this, this, this problem. And we all suffer. The Bible is clear. All the sin and fallen short of the glory of God. So we all have been entered into this shameful life, this life of shame where we, in a sense, have, have, have taken on the shame of our sinfulness and, and, and live in shame, and, beca- and we constantly mess up along the way. And there seems to be no way to rid us from that shame. The same way it is is that we, we have encountered this, uh, some have called it a mountain of moral debt. Uh, there's this sin debt that we have laid upon us, and it seems like we keep adding to it as time goes on, and not the right thoughts, not the right actions, and we just keep going through life like that. Others have mentioned it as there just seems to be an evil power that constantly pushes us away from what God would want and, and just seems to overpower us and we get taken by it and not do the right thing. And try as we might, there doesn't seem to be any way for us to rid ourselves of this shame, to take care of this mountain of moral debt, or to overpower this evil sense that's around us. And that's why we need a Savior, someone to deal with it, because we can't somehow do good and counteract the shame or somehow uh, uh, pay, uh, you know, be kind and give money and somehow it cancels out the debt or, and we're just not strong enough to, the evil forces are out there. I mean, look at our world. I mean, most of you saw the news about what's happening in Syria. Oh my goodness. What kind of evil does that to children? Gasses them and it just is horrendous and horrific. And oh my, I've just been uh, reading about uh, the history of Cambodia and the whole reign of, of the, the Khmer Rouge, and I'm, I'm just, just sickened by how evil people can be. Sin is real in our world, and, and you all know that. We see it every day when we open up the newspaper or look on our news feed on our smartphone or, or look at the news on TV. It's, it's just there. And there's, we seem to be powerless against it, and we need a Savior. Well, that's what King Jesus is for us. Our King, Savior, King Jesus, deals with our sin. And the events of this week give us a great understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. Uh, Just like the the book of Mark explains, uh, Jesus kept trying to tell his disciples how he would go about his kingdom. And and he he challenges us in, in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. See, because Jesus paid the ultimate penalty for us by dying on the cross and it broke the bond of sin that we no longer have to suffer its effects. Sure, in this world, but the, the reality of its, its deeper effects and the resurrection validates who Jesus is and all that he taught. And for us to enjoy this abundant life God has for us is to have faith in, to believe Jesus as Messiah, King over everything and over our lives. And now, much of the world gets this concept of what it means to be, what it means for kingship or to be under a king, to have a king, to submit and surrender to someone in authority over us, regardless of whether we want to or not. Uh, with a good king, People flourish, they thrive with uh, self-focused, power-hungry, evil, and mean kings. People struggle and life is miserable. In some parts of the world, like, like where we are here in the West, we're taught to see ourselves as king and queen, the highest authority of life. 
surrendering and submitting to no one but self. And we've discovered uh, that really doesn't work all that well. I mean, you can't be in a community uh, and, and yet think only of yourself when everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. It certainly doesn't work in a relationship when you're only looking out for yourself and what you want and not thinking about what you give. Uh, the relationship doesn't work. And actually, it doesn't work in any part of life. Because the truth is, is that we were designed to function under the reign of a good and great loving servant king, and that's Jesus. But it is seeing Jesus for who he is, not for any misconceptions or notions. Jesus is not just the, <clears throat> some military leader to level people we've labeled as enemies. Jesus is not just some good teacher who enhances our life. Jesus is not some genie in a bottle that you rub the lamp and get your three wishes. Jesus is king. In other words, working his purposes and his plans. And when we come under his leadership, under his lordship, life for us works. And we experience that supernatural abundance. Life without him as Lord, life based on some misconception, life crushes. Life stood on him, life stands for him. Let me, let me, let me show this for a second. I, I need some help. Garrick, would you come here? And, and Andy, Funkai, I need you up here for a second. So <clears throat> over here, Garrick, just stand by this box right here. And Andy, yeah, come on up. I need you to stand by this box right here. And uh, um, you just wait there, Andy. I got something to do with Garrick first. Okay, so why don't you step up on the platform here, Garrick. Yeah, to be taller. So stand up here. Let, let me hold your hand because I want you to step up on this box, okay? On this box. On this box right here. Just I want you to step. Yeah, put, with gusto, I want you to step right on. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Okay. Good job. Stand right there. Okay, Andy, it's your turn. <clears throat> Andy, step on up this box. Hold my hand here. and Hang on. With gusto, I want you to step up on the box. Ready? Ready? Go ahead. Hey! Okay, you guys stay right there for a second. So let me ask a, a simple, you know, uh, physics question. Um, why did Garrick's box crush, and why did Andy's box stand firm? <laughs> Garrick's been eating too much. I, I don't think it's... <clears throat> Both services, yeah. <laughs> why did you get that? Yeah, no, stand up, you're good. <clears throat> no, the real re and, and the real reason is that the force on the outside of the box was greater than the force on the inside of the box. And so naturally, when Garrick put his force on that, his uh, uh, potential energy inertia onto that box, it crushed it flat because there was nothing inside. Now, Andy's box stood firm because why? What's that? Because there's something inside. Uh, there's something inside that's greater than the, than the, than the weight on the outside <clears throat> is greater so that it can stand firm against that. Okay, let's give these guys a hand. You can, you can, yeah, you can zip off. Thanks. Thanks, Garrick. I love you. But it's a great picture of, of our lives and faith. See, when we put our faith in our conceptions of Jesus or in our actions, it crushes. Because the reality of life and there are issues in life, pressures in life that crush our, us and our faith just crumbles like that. 
However, if we put our faith in the truth, in the word of God, God's word, which is truth, it's been proven to be true, it's accurate, you can trust in it. When you put your faith on his word, your faith stands firm. You get that? Does that make sense? I want you to keep this image in your mind as we walk through this because we're to place our faith not in our own conceptions or thoughts, but to put our faith in the Word of God. For faith in Jesus of the Bible produces a faith that stands firm and a fruitful life. Now, as Mark is describing how Jesus is king, Mark brings an unusual story. He wants us to get this image of where your faith is in. And he brings in an unusual story that involves a tree and the temple in Jerusalem where people came to worship. He wants us to reveal that it's not just knowing or having a thought of Jesus that life is all about, but the life we were meant to live is found in faith in Jesus, declaring him as king. For our faith in Jesus of the Bible produces a fruitful life. It's a choice of the will to surrender and submit to Jesus as the highest authority in life and to adore and to admire him as the highest affection in life. And so this morning, I want us to look in on that story, Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 25, to see what fruitless faith is like and what standing firm and faith standing firm looks like. And so before we do that, if you wouldn't mind setting aside your Bibles for a second and stand up and let's pray and ask God to, to challenge us. Um, one of the interesting things, by the way, my name is Mike, one of the pastors here. I didn't get a chance to say that. just come right off the video. But uh, as I was studying this passage, one of the commentators, those who, who look into these passages and write books all about different passages like this, said this is one of the most difficult passages in all of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to deal with. And so this morning, we need God's help. God's helped to make it clear to us. And so let's pray and ask him. Father, thank you that we can come to you with these matters. And Holy Spirit, you can give us understanding as we look into your word. And not just understanding to know what it says, but well, how it applies to our life. And God, I know sometimes the image of our faith looks more about crushed than it does standing firm. And so God, help us. Help us to understand how to have that firm standing faith, Jesus, in you. You who the Bible tells us to be. And challenge us with our own thoughts of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat and encourage you to take out the worship folder that Carrie talked to you about this morning. Uh, inside there, there's a number of things that are there. One of them is an outline, and you can pull that out. It's got some blanks to fill in. The answers will be up on the screen. Also encourage you to uh, pick up one of our study guides in the lobby. It has a lot of the verses that I'll be mentioning. Plus, in the back of it, it has a, all the blanks filled in and that. And it has a, it's a study guide. Many of our life groups, our small groups, use this as a study guide. Some of the small groups are not meeting this um, during the Easter week, but you can use it as a personal study and encourage you along that way. So let's talk about fruitless faith. It's Sunday, and, and, and as was mentioned before, in history, this is an amazing day where Jesus enters the city, enters Jerusalem. And some do recognize him as king. Uh, they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, as we mentioned. It's a prayer, a, a blessing of hope of the coming Messiah, of his messianic kingdom going to be happening. It's a, it's a prayer of hope that they pray time and time and time again. And then they yelled out, Hosanna, which we learned what that means. It means, save us, save us now, Lord. 
Seeing Jesus as the mighty warrior who has power, awesome power, healing power, power over the weather, power over death. They're seeing Jesus as king, but their version of king, the kind of designer Messiah they want. James and, uh, and John wanted a Messiah that would put them in power. We read through in Mark and learned that. Simon the Zealot, uh, one of the other followers of Jesus, wanted a political Messiah. Others wanted a healer. Uh, still more wanted an oppressor releaser. Very few in that crowd that day, or very few that followed Jesus, were looking for the kind of saving from sin Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about. The verses are found in your study guide. You can go grab those later. But he talked about how he would set up the kingdom by being wounded for our transgressions, suffering for our sins. And the trouble is, we can see that designer Messiah as well. It's easy for us to see Jesus as just a rescuer because we think that we should never suffer. We have this, for some reason, some idea that if we do the right things, that's putting our faith in our perceptions and in our actions, that somehow we'll be able to stand firm and that nothing bad should ever happen to us. And yet what happens in reality is our faith gets crushed because we've placed our faith more in our actions and our perceptions than in Jesus. And the truth is Jesus came to save us from a deeper, more sinister suffering. That's the wrath of God on sin, the shame of sin, the moral debt of sin, the power of evil and sin. And if our faith isn't just a rescuer of our current condition, we'll continually be crushed because difficult issues in life keep happening. Even in good people. Bad things happen to good people. And at, so it is fruitless, it's a fruitless endeavor to see Jesus just as a rescuer or just as a warrior or just as a political power. And so to get us to think about this and to seek the fruit of standing firm in faith in Jesus the Bible, Jesus creates two living parables. Now, a parable is a story. Uh, Jesus told a lot of stories. He's told a story of the, of the good Samaritan. That's a parable. He told the, the story of the two sons, the prodigal son. He told those stories. And they were uh, stories with meaning. Well, right now, he's ready to do two living parables. Now, the, the Old Testament prophets did this all the time. They would wear something and walk around the village, and they go, why? What's he wearing that for? They would you know, sit for a long time, and people are going, why is he sitting? And they would do so, all kinds of crazy things, and you can read about those in the Old Testament. But Jesus is doing a living parable, two huge thought-provoking actions Mark records. And so let's look at those right now. Turn over to your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, by the way, I'm sorry, ushers, I didn't yell at you for this thing. But if you have a, don't have a Bible and you want to borrow one, or ushers are scampering to grab some Bibles and uh, it, he'll coming down the aisle. If you want to borrow one, just wave at him and then you can turn to the Bible book of Mark. Matthew, Mark. It's in the New Testament, Luke and John. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Okay, so this is after Sunday. Sunday has happened and now it's Monday. On the following day, when they, that's Jesus and his, his posse, his, his group, uh, came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing 
in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Okay, that's really confusing. But remember, it's not about figs. I know some of you like Fig Newtons, and I love them too, especially the fat-free kind, because then you don't feel guilty, but they're still 90 calories for two. Anyways, um, <laughs> why that came into my head just now, I have no idea. <laughs> but it's true. You go and you look at the back of the package, and they're 90 calories for just, for just two. Yeah. Anyways, it's not about figs. He's trying to show something about fruitlessness, and it doesn't make a difference what season it is or whether there are figs there or not. He's trying to prove a point. It even gets weirder. It's not the season of figs. And he said to it, the tree, he said, may no one <clears throat> ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And the disciples started going, what is he doing? The story goes on. And when they came to Jerusalem, so they're from Bethany, they see the tree, then they're coming to Jerusalem, they entered the temple and began, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, it, it, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, and you have made it into a den of robbers. <laughs> the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. What? I mean, this doesn't seem like the Jesus we've been talking about. One who's compassionate and caring and has children around him and that. He's cursing fig trees and he's... he's you know, getting angry, throwing over tables. What's going on here? Remember, they're living parables. He's trying to show something and get us to think. The first living parable is the curse of the fig tree. And you can read in verse 20 what happens. As they pass by the next morning, so that's now Tuesday, they saw the fig tree withered away from its roots. It had dried up. It was fruitless because that is what happens when our faith is not in Jesus of the Bible. It's crushed. It's empty. It's fruitless. The fig tree is a, a direct reference to Israel. You can pick up the study guide and show some of the verses that talk about that. Jesus is saying that though Israel looks all spiritually healthy and vibrant, following the laws, all these green leaves out there, even making extra laws. And that's what, that's what Israel did. They, they had the, the Ten Commandments and all the commandments that Moses had given them to follow, and they decided, we don't just want to follow those. We're going to back up and follow, create even more laws uh, so that we don't get anywhere near touching that, so we can come off looking all spiritual. And to other nations, Israel looked spiritual. I mean, they had God on their side. The God who smote things and did crazy things and they, they saw miraculous things happen. And they're, ooh, boy, he's, that God is something. And people would come to, to Jerusalem to, to, to check out this God. And that was, that was Israel's whole design, that they would be a, a city on a hill. That people would look up and go, wow, there must be something amazing about that God. They were to be a light to the nations. So that people would see their amazing God and be and flock to it like flies to light 
at night. And so Jesus is saying, though they look spiritual, there is no fruit. Their lives were not showing the fruit of a changed life and not reflecting the true nature, the true love of God. And the reality is we can be just like that. We can go to church, study the Bible, even memorize a few verses, give of our time and our money, and put our trust in those actions. And if we put our trust in those actions, it's fruitless. It's like a fig tree that has a bunch of leaves and no fruit. And that's maybe why some struggle, maybe why you struggle, is because we're placing our trust in the practice of faith and not in the person of Jesus. See, when we put our trust in Jesus of the Bible as king, submitting and surrendering to his leadership, his influence, his rule over our life, the fruit of the Spirit is produced. That fruit is found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, there is no action. They happen as we dwell on the character of God, understanding who Jesus is from the Bible. And as we soak into those characteristics, they come out our life. See, fruitless faith is faith in our actions. It's not that we don't ever do anything, but it's the result of being fully devoted in faith to our King Jesus. See, because we have taken in and revel in Jesus' love. We are inclined to love. <laughs> the Bible says that, that we are like those who we hang around. We start taking on their characteristics. We're, we're the same. You know, it happens mostly in people that are younger, but, but even older, you start seeing, you hang around the same kind of people, you start dressing like them, you start acting like them, you start walking like them. It, we, we become like the people we hang around. And we hang more around God and Christ and understand his attributes, we, we stand firm in our faith and those fruits are, begin to show in our life. Because we grasp Jesus' grace, we tend to be gracious. See, salvation is given to us, offered to us. Jesus went to the cross, paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, dealt with our shame, dealt with our mountain of moral debt, dealt with the power. When he paid it in full on the cross, when he yelled out to tell a story, he paid it in full, he took care of all of that. And by grace, he says, here is salvation. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you. All you need to do is reach out in faith and grab it. And when we understand and grasp his grace, we tend to be gracious as well. Because we have experienced Jesus' inclusion and including us, we strive to be inclusive. It's like, um, it's like eating garlic. Anybody like to eat garlic? I mean, oh, roasted garlic. Oh, a little pan, a little olive oil. Mm. <laughs> Bake it for a little bit. Aye. Put it on some bread. <laughs> Isn't that good? Oh, yeah. My, my mouth is watering right now. Oh, you know, you, uh, you know, what is it? You know, garlic and shrimp or, I mean, you can, I mean, garlic goes in with anything. Uh, it, it's wonderful. What happens when you eat a lot of garlic? Yeah. 
it, obviously, it's hard to get it out of your breath, but, but, but doesn't it sometimes kind of start oozing through your pores? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, we used to live uh, close to Gilroy, California. You know what Gilroy is? The garlic capital of the world. When the winds would shift, uh, it would actually blow down that, that, that corridor uh, and come and waft into our little neighborhood there. Oh, heaven. Well, that's the idea that with, with our, our own selves with God, is that as we soak in his character, as we spend time delving into his word, which is his revelation of himself and his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all God, as we, as we revel in himself, it, it comes into our lives and we begin to take on his characteristic and it oozes out our pores. And we begin to smell like God. Have fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those fruits are established in our life. For fruit comes from my devotion, my surrender, and submission to Jesus as King. Anything else is fruitless. For faith in Jesus of the Bible produces a fruitful life. The other living parable is the cleansing of the temple. So Jesus walks in and he sees a scene that just hits him from at his core. The temple, this wonderful, beautiful worship center designed by God, given first to Moses to be this mobile uh, worship center that traveled around with the children of Israel, had a number of uh, important elements in that. All those elements were pointing to King Messiah. All those elements and, and then laid it out and as, as, as God allowed Solomon to build it, laying out in Jerusalem, it was to be that place was open to everybody so that any nation, any people group, anybody who's coming to Jerusalem could come in and watch the worship and notice and begin to wonder, wow, who is this God that they're worshiping? And as they watch the, the, the different elements and the different furnitures and things happening, they would gain an understanding that this God is amazing. Well, what had happened is that, as human nature does, they began to start turning it into a business and seeking to make money. So people would come with their two turtle doves to sacrifice, and they'd bring them to the, to the Levites there, and they would hand to them and and somebody had a great idea. Hey, we can make some money off of this. Hey, don't bring your own turtle doves. We'll have them here, and you can buy them here. And they would buy the turtle doves there, and then they would take them, and they wouldn't sacrifice them. They'd just take them and turn them around and put them back and sell them again. In the same way, they thought, hey, we can make even more money. Why don't we say you can only use temple money? We'll make a, a new currency that's temple money, and you have to exchange whatever uh, currency you have. You have to exchange it for temple money. And of course, they did it at an inflated exchange rate. We'll give you two of yours for only a half of one of ours, so you need twice as much. And they were making money hand over fist, and it wasn't just stopped with the turtle does. They, were, they went all through that whole outer court, so much so that not even an outsider could see in any longer. And Jesus is enraged. In one of the Gospels, it says he yanked off a cord of... Uh, of the cords that were holding up some of the curtains and used as a whip, turning over those tables and whipping people out. That's why it really disturbs me when people have an image of Jesus as this, you know, kind of sunken face, you know, kind of mildly skinny person that 
you know, it's like, and you, and you think, you know, you know, this mild person, oh, you know, meek little Jesus, okay, people. No, that's not my image of Jesus. He was a carpenter. And a carpenter wasn't just somebody who just worked in little woodwork. He actually had to saw the logs himself and carry them. He was, I, I picture Jesus having big old burly muscles and just this commanding personality. And when he yanked away those cords, those huge cords like this, and used them as a whip, get out of here, boom, turning over tables, things were flying everywhere. People ran because Jesus was awesome. I don't know if that's how Jesus looked, but that's how my Jesus looks. He wanted people out of there because the temple was designed to show people what Messiah, King, was supposed to be like. As they looked in through those outer courts, they would see this brazen altar. It was where the, the, the Levites would sacrifice the animals. It was like a big, giant barbecue. So can you imagine the smell, like a tri-tip? Just this, this smell of meat cooking and stuff like that, but it was to represent the sacrifice that Messiah would make. And then you'd move over to this big giant uh, birdbath kind of a thing. It was a, called a label where, where the, the priests and others would wash their hands ceremoniously, uh, representing that the Messiah would, would, would cleanse us, just like Jesus does, cleansing us from all unrighteousness, and that he is the, the, the living water of life, giving us life. And then they walk into the holy place where uh, really only the Levites went in there and and yet you could, they could smell the wafting of that fresh bread because there was a, a, a table there with, with fresh bread in there that Messiah would be the bread of life. And then on the other side, there was all these menorahs, uh, lamps that were lit to, to light up the holy place and to represent that the Messiah would be the light of the world. And then the altar of incense standing in the back, these smoke would be traveling up of, speaking of the Spirit's presence in there and then the prayers of the saints and, and then prayers that would move up to God. And then that was in front of a giant curtain about 13 inches deep uh, uh, and, and separated with different kinds of materials. And then there was the Holy of Holies, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. You know, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. It looked just like that, kind of. And, uh, <laughs> and on top of that Ark was the mercy seat where once a year the... the um, high priest would come and he would sprinkle the blood of a spotless lamb to cover the sins of Israel because Messiah is the lamb of God to not just cover our sins but to remove them as far as the east is from the west to actually cleanse us and all of that pointed to King Jesus and, and he moved them out of there and uh, um, these people had cheapened worship and worship's goal to be self-serving. And the sad tendency is that we can do the same. We can think that our singing and, and style of music or style of preaching is really about us. We say we can't worship, we can't learn unless, and you fill in the blank. That's not worship. That's called entertainment. There's no right kind of music or more godly style. Sure, we have preferences, but the key of worship is a focus on God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that includes singing, traditional songs, new songs, new styles, all kinds of musical instruments, all kinds of preaching styles, and yet to turn worship into going after a feeling or some other self-gain is fruitless. 
we will never be satisfied. And really, we will never find the true Jesus of the Bible if we're trying to seek our own preferences. Now, it doesn't mean we never gain from worship or feel or have preferences, but those are the byproducts of worship. Our aim in worship is to experience and be amazed at how awesome God is and to be and to admire and adore him for he is amazing. He's incredible. He's beautiful. He's beyond our wildest dreams that we could ever imagine. He's more huge than we can ever imagine. I love how Psalm 145, verse 3 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. It doesn't mean that you can't find it. It means that you can't stop uncovering more of Jesus because there's always more to uncover. Uh, we can even read the entire Bible and then read it again and again and again and again and again and again and still learn more new things about God and about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit and about the Father. Because he is unsearchable. You cannot exhaust all that there is to know about God. And every time we enter worship should be a new discovery of what's God going to reveal to us today about himself. And are we really open to that? Or are we more uh, have the attitude, I wonder what they're going to sing. I wonder if it's going to be a band or it's going to be a piano or it's going to be hymns or it's going to be new songs or it's going to be loud or soft. It doesn't matter. What matters is it's about God. See, it's fruitless to put our faith in anything else but King Jesus. And in that, we will have a faith that stands firm. So it's the next day. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed was withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. What? Let's read on. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whoever, whenever you stand praying, forgive. For if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father will also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Jesus here is, is bringing in the lesson of this living parable. That we are not to base faith in appearance or self-focus. But here it is. Jesus says it plainly. Have faith in God. Don't have faith. In, in, in other things, in appearances. Don't have faith in the outward show of things. Have faith in God. So our job, our joy is to discover and to trust standing firm on the foundation of who God is and growing in that trust. It's like when you are um, trusting to purchase a new car or even go to a new restaurant. Uh, you do a little research whether you use your smartphone and check on the, you know, what does Yelp have to do say with this or, or what do the consumer reports have to say about this car or whatever, you do a little research and then you go maybe take a test drive and see if you can experience or go and try that and ask other people who've experienced it. Well, with Jesus, we're not to just put our faith in our experiences or what others say, but to trust in the truth of God, the truth of God's word, because it is true. 
It's profitable for teaching and correction and training in righteousness. And it is, reveals to us who God is. And so we're to put our trust in the truth of God. So we need to constantly go back to understanding the truth of Christ from his word. It's like when Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a trust in Christ that no matter what we go through, whether our circumstances change or not, that we can put our faith in Jesus and stand firm, knowing that he's dealing with it as he wills. His way, walking it through in his power. We face medical issues. We pray like crazy, having faith, believing that this mountain will be moved, and yet it doesn't get moved because the truth is cancer happens. It happens to good people and not so good people. It happens to all of us. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, as we said. Or marriage issues or the losses we experience. And then through those, we need to not trust in the circumstances changing but to trust in Jesus, to rest in him. It's like with uh, Jairus' daughter. We looked at this in, in Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark chapter 5. Uh, Jairus, a synagogue official, his daughter was uh, near death. So he comes to Jesus and he asks him to come to his house and to heal her. And Jesus is on his way. And he gets uh, distracted and, and, and someone comes from the house, don't bother the teacher any longer. He's, she's gone. Jesus catches eyes with Jairus and says to him, do not fear, only believe, only have faith. But the faith in our amazing Jesus who can do the impossible, for faith in King Jesus means we can overcome. Those are the mountains that move. And our prayers of faith are not based on the faith of our efforts, but on faith in the amazing Lord who can do the impossible. Again, he will do what he will do. And though we may not get the healing or what we believe in prayer, you see, we somehow, we read these verses and we have this notion that somehow if we can somehow muster up this belief, I believe, and we think that it's just in our power. Somehow our power is greater than God's power. That if we, and because we don't have that power, our, our, our circumstances won't change. That's, again, putting our faith in our own perceptions, our own self. What we need to do is put our faith in Jesus. But we don't know if the healing is going to happen or not. We still need to trust in his character, in who he is, and we will stand firm. Even if we have to go through cancer, go through a death, go through a difficulty, we will stand firm. It's a faith that he has a plan. So our prayers, if they don't get answered, our faith stands firm because our faith is in Jesus, not if it gets answered or not. Firm standing faith is in Jesus. So the question is, what does your faith look like? Does it tend to look more like this, crushed at every circumstance, or does it stand firm? Or maybe it's kind of back and forth to both. The point is, faith in Jesus of the Bible produces a fruitful, standing firm life. A fruitless faith is faith based on our efforts, 
and in, 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 in appearances and a self-focus. Faith that stands firm is faith in Jesus that produces a, the fruit of spirit that moves mountains of issues. Uh, the, the image is clear. Place your faith in Jesus, in him alone. And you may be wondering, how do I begin to do that if you haven't already done that? Uh, that's why this on this Easter week, all throughout this, we're going to be offering people to take these packets who really want to know more about faith in Jesus. In here, there's a book written by an author who was a skeptic, actually an investigative reporter, who was unsure of, of who this Jesus of the Bible was. And he actually sought to disprove him and then came to faith and now has spent his life, his name is Lee Strobel, spent his life seeking to tell people about how amazing King Jesus is. And this booklet's in here plus a, a letter I've written to you. If you're searching, uh, at the end of the service, you can grab these out of the lobby area. Uh, there'll be some ushers who have some carnations on. They'll be holding them. They don't, you don't need to engage in any conversation. You can just pick one up. But just, just pick one up for yourself. Don't pick one up to the you know, tens of neighbors that need to know this. Invite them here, then they can pick one up themselves and go from there. But I encourage you to pick up that packet. I encourage you to, be, to declare Jesus as king. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for um, your word. I know sometimes, Lord, it's a little difficult to understand because there's some crazy things that happen as we launch through and, and study your word. It is true. And Lord, it's so easy for us to put our faith in either our perception or or, Lord, uh, our own thought of you, and yet not based on the truth of your word, that you are an amazing, incredible, powerful, awesome God, and that we can trust you. And it really comes down to that idea of trust and what we really believe. Thank you for John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, and him trying to get us and challenge us in what we believe. So, Lord, help us, even in our unbelief, to come to that saving knowledge of you, that understanding of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a time in our service that we take to reflect. It's a time that you can just give an opportunity for you to think through the message that's been told, this image that's here, the songs that have been sung, and, and really consider Jesus and where you're at with him. My hope, my prayer is that you would take this moment to think through those things and even talk to God. He loves the sound of your thoughts. He'd love it if you were to talk to him. And if you would like to pray with somebody to stand in front of you,